From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning, I'm Larry Mantle. Congress hasn't agreed on an extension of supplementary unemployment benefits. The extra $600 a week is gone, just as landlords are due August rent. We'll hear how listeners are managing this extremely difficult time. And a UCLA survey of local real estate shows uniform pessimism across all markets. Commercial rents are headed down, but it doesn't look like residential renters will be getting a break. We'll examine the results. And L.A. County seeing a significantly higher COVID-19 death rate for men. We'll consider several possible explanations. It's Air Talk, followed by Film Week after the news. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us wherever you are in Southern California, listening at 89.3 or on the KPCC app, worldwide there as well as at kpcc.org. Coming up at 11 o'clock on Film Week, our critics have a lot to talk about for this uh, predicted to be very hot weekend. You might want to Stay inside during the heat of the day and catch up on some good films. There's new Polish drama, The Hater, from acclaimed director Jan Komasa. We'll hear what our critics have to say about that, as well as an ACLU-centric documentary, The Fight, which profiles four attorneys and their legal cases against the Trump administration. One of the attorneys, uh, guests we have frequently on the program, Lee Gallant. Uh, so we'll hear about that film. And Ron Howard has a new documentary with a National Geographic rebuilding paradise looks at the deadliest fire in California history and how residents of paradise in Northern California have been coping with the loss of almost all of their city. But we begin with the tremendous economic challenges that Southern Californians are facing right now. With the end of the $600 a week unemployment supplement provided by the federal government. It puts so many households uh, in a much deeper hole than they'd been in previously. And of course, with August rent now due for those that are renting, the question I have for you is, how are you dealing with all this? And what sorts of plans are you making to deal with the financial pressures that you're facing in your households? Just a good chance for us to check in with each other to find out what you're experiencing. We're at 866-893-KPECC, the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. You can tweet at AirTalk. Also, you can post on the AirTalk Facebook page. Now, uh, President Trump and Republicans offered a short-term continuation of the $600 weekly unemployment supplement. Democrats in Congress turned that down, saying that they don't want to separate the different parts uh, of a stimulus plan uh, and want to have a comprehensive approach, not take it piece by piece. But regardless of the political dispute that is at the center of this, the effect on local households is big. 866-893-KPCC. Please share with us this morning how you're intending to cope with that loss of $600 a week supplementary unemployment benefits. With us uh, from Torrance-based Kendall Law, which specializes in real estate law, Eileen Kendall, uh, 
Ms. Kendall, thank you very much for for joining us. Um, What sort of a crunch are we expecting now with rental properties and the fate of renters? Uh, My pleasure, Larry. So the tenants that are struggling do have um, some more protection based both on the county level and a city level. Right now, also, the judicial system has put a halt to all types of evictions, whether it was COVID-related or not. While there is some discussion that that might be um, not extended and actually stopped, there are still uh, very significant protections both in L.A. County and L.A. City that helps renters. And I know that much of your practice focuses on landlords, property owners. Um, What are they facing in the way of unpaid rents, given that moratorium on evictions? Well, I have two categories. For my property management clients, it seems like the majority of people that can pay rent are paying rent. The percentage is pretty low of the tenants that are not able to pay Uh, There are the handful of tenants that don't reach out to the property managers and don't let them know anything so that they're in a bind because they don't know what's happening. They don't know if it's COVID-related or not. The real bunch of calls that I get are individual property owners that maybe had a house that they uh, had owned and decided to move and rent it out, and they have their renters that pay the rent, which in turn pays their mortgage and their property taxes, and those are the ones that are really struggling when their renters can't pay the rent. Again, I'd like to hear from those of you, and it could be that you're a property owner and you're dealing with uncertainty or loss of of income on the properties that you rent. Uh, I'd like to hear from renters. How are you juggling all the different financial commitments that you've got for housing, for food, uh, for other expenses that your household has taken on if you've been relying on the $600 a week federal unemployment supplement, which now goes away. 866-893-KPECC, the AirTalk page, kpecc.org, tweeted AirTalk post on the AirTalk Facebook page. So important that we hear from you and the ways in which you're trying to deal with this. For example, if you're a renter and you found it difficult to pay the full rent that's due, have you had conversations with uh, your landlord, property manager, with the owner of the property? What sorts of arrangements have you been able to make or is there an impasse? Um, If there were not the um, eviction moratorium, would you be able to stay in your in uh, your apartment or your house or not? 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. I know for some listeners who have roommates, maybe you have a roommate who hasn't been able to um, afford to keep up uh, on the lease. So that's put you in a difficult circumstance there. But a chance for you to weigh in and let us know how you are dealing with the kind of financial stressors that you're facing with that $600 a week federal unemployment supplement going away. Eileen Kendall of Kendall Law, specializing in real estate law, joining us. Um, Eileen, if if we have any listeners um, where property owners have tried to evict them from the property and and done that despite uh, state, or I should say uh, uh, county and, and city laws against that, what sort of recourse do they have? They have a lot of recourse. 
the, the recent changes gave the tenants a private right of action, which means that they are now allowed to bring civil penalty cases in court. And I actually have one where a, a tenant has filed action against my client um, saying that they are trying to illegally evict them under the moratoriums. There are penalties up to $10,000 per violation for landlords that uh, do not comply with the moratoriums, and that's increased by an additional $5,000, so up to $15,000 if the tenant is older than 65 or disabled, and that's for per violation. So a landlord does have the opportunity to cure once you know, they're put on notice that, hey, you're not supposed to do this. Uh, but if they continue, there are, you know, attorney's fees, these civil penalties and other penalties that are um, available for renters. And if if a, a property owner has um, a, a tenant who is typically someone that they would evict for um, either, you know, uh, behavior in the property or damage the property, things like that. Do property owners have any recourse to for-cause evictions? So if it is something with respect to a breach by the tenant that's not related to rent, so if, for instance, uh, a property has a tenant that is uh, dealing drugs or is a nuisance and the police are called multiple times, that's something that they call fault evictions. And you can still try to proceed with that. And I say try because the court system itself has put a stop on those. So what a property owner could do is, is serve a three-day notice to cure the violation and outlying the reasons why the police have been called, you know, they're being a nuisance to the neighbors. Uh, if they don't cure that, they can file a complaint and they do get case numbers, but the court is not issuing the legal document called a summons, which is what gives the court the power over the defendant. The court's just not issuing those, but at least the landowner has it in line so when the courts do open up they can be at the top of the line instead of the back of the line um, so those are evictions that are allowed because it is at fault now the exception is is in the city if you have a nuisance or an unauthorized pet or occupant because of covid so say uh, somebody's lost their job and two or three people have had to move in those are protected and can't be processed now, uh, at some point, tenants are expected to pay the back rent that they weren't able to afford to pay during the COVID-19 crisis. Um, is that open-ended at this point, since we don't know how long the effects of the pandemic will be with us? Yes, Larry, in a sense it is. The rule right now is that the residential renters have 12, 12 months following the expiration of the local emergency. But that's the unknown right now. When that ends, you know, if it ends at the end of, you know, 2020, then they have a year from then. But we don't know when that date starts because we just don't know when they're going to pull that in local emergency order. And I'd love to hear from AirTalk listeners. If, if you're someone who is being hit hard by the end of the $600 a week, supplementary unemployment insurance, which has now come to an end, uh, Congress has not agreed on a full or partial extension of that additional unemployment benefit. I'd like to hear what your plans are 
for working with uh, so much uh, less money coming into your household. 866-893-KPECC. And if you're someone uh, for whom the state has lagged in processing your application and you've been living without that extra 600 a week, even though you're entitled to it, what are the ways that you've dealt with that? How have you been able to make ends meet despite that? 866-893-KPECC. Uh, real estate attorney Eileen Kendall with me. Eileen, there have been some tenant advocacy groups that have pushed for rent forgiveness. I don't recall us ever having uh, a push for something like that. And how would that work? Um, Is the idea that public dollars would be used to pay the property owners or the property owners would not be paid or only partially paid? What, how, how would that happen? That's a good question, Larry. I think that that's the unknown as well. I know that there is some legislation pending. Uh, it has been revised several times and gone back, um, even to even make this debt not something related to rent, but making it related to commercial debt so that it wouldn't even be allowed to be collected in an eviction. Um, I think that there are some discussions about, you know, private or state money or county money helping landlords. But I think that the ultimate outcome may be that a lot of these mom-and-pop type renter uh, landlords are just not going to have rental property. They're going to lose this property to foreclosures or have to sell it very low on the, you know, uh, to some investors because they're just not going to be able to maintain it. Because a lot of the mom-and-pop renters rely on the income, one, to pay the mortgage if there is one, the upkeep, and it's probably what they were using for retirement. Anna in Westchester says, uh, I've been paying rent even though my husband's been furloughed since March, but my landlord just told me our rent will increase by 4% and we haven't been given much notice. She wonders, is there any sort of a rent freeze or just an eviction moratorium? Eileen? So, Larry, in the city of L.A., there is a rent increase freeze on what they call the rent stabilization units, which are the rent control units. Uh, I don't know. I think Westminster may be in Orange County, and I don't know. if Westchester. No, it is LA. It's near the airport, right next to the airport. Yes. Okay, I'm sorry. Yes. So if it is a rent stabilization unit, they cannot increase the rent, uh, but there is not for non-rent controlled units. Okay, so if she's in a non-rent control unit, uh, the landlord would be able to to raise the rent. Uh, Anna, sorry about that news, unless you are in a rent-controlled property. 866-893-KPECC, the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Dennis in Pasadena, welcome. Yes. Dennis, are you there? Go right ahead, please. I'm here, I'm here. Um I have an unusual situation. There was an eviction, a fault eviction that was issued prior to the pandemic, but it was set to, to be enforced October. Uh, uh, long story, but to take effect in October, I'm wondering, do we have any protections to keep that eviction from being actually enforced by the sheriff? Uh, you mentioned earlier that there are some moratoriums and protections for people, even if the evictions are not pandemic. Uh, caused. And Dennis, um, without um, prying too much into this, I missed, was this a a claim of for-cause eviction or no-fault eviction? No, it was a cause eviction. Fault eviction. A cause, okay, thanks, Dennis. Um, Eileen Kendall? 
Uh, yes. So right now, the sheriff are not processing any type of eviction. So if October comes and these protections by the courts are still happening, the sheriffs are turning down the e- what they're called a writ, and that's what gives them the authority to go and um, remove somebody. Right now, they are not removing renters. So my caveat always is, is this might change. Um, October is still a few months away, so I, I can't foresee the future. But as of today, they are not processing and removing people from property. All right, Dennis, we wish you all the best. Thank you for sharing your circumstance. We're talking with Torrance-based real estate attorney Eileen Kendall. Uh, she works primarily with property owners, but also has advice on renters and what sorts of legal protections there are in this pandemic era. Uh, Tristan in Woodland Hill says, my husband's in the entertainment industry, and I was working as a substitute teacher. We have a couple of kids. I'm just on the edge of my seed, hoping that they're going to extend the $600 weekly benefits. We have a little bit of savings, but no idea when production will start back up. So, uh, Tristan, I assume that your husband that you're talking about is, is is someone who doesn't get paid if there's not production, not not someone who is um, – in a full-time employed entertainment job. Of course, most most of those jobs relate to projects. So, Tristan, thank you very much. Uh, Eileen Kendall, I want to thank you for being with us, sharing your expertise, and talking about the tremendous challenge people have with housing, particularly with their $600 weekly unemployment benefits uh, stopping as of the end of the month. Thanks so much. Thank you, Larry. Eileen Kendall, Torrance-based Kendall Law, specializing in real estate. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. I'm coming your way from home, as I often do on Fridays. Coming up, we'll talk about the latest on consumer spending and where we are in the COVID-19-related recession. We'll be talking with economists next, just one minute, on Air Talk. So good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up on Film Week at 11 o'clock this morning, our critics will take a look at a number of uh, interesting documentaries, including a new Showtime documentary on L.A.'s own rock band The Go-Go's. Allison Elwood, the director of the film, which debuts tonight on Showtime and on their app. Ron Howard, Oscar-winning director, has a new documentary, Rebuilding Paradise, which looks at the deadliest wildfire in California history. Just over a year and a half ago, in a single day, the town of Paradise was uh, almost fully leveled. We'll talk about Paradise and its challenge in coming back after such devastation. Uh, Also, a documentary on four ACLU cases uh, in which uh, the ACLU has filed suit against the Trump administration. The documentary is The Fight, and it follows four ACLU attorneys uh, and shows their side of of that legal battle. But we continue with an economic uh, framework for the next segment of Air Talk. Joining me is economist Chris Thornburg, founding partner of Beacon Economics, based in L.A., and Jerry Nicholsberg, who's director of the UCLA Anderson Forecast and UCLA professor of economics. Gentlemen, so good to have you with us. Chris, let me start with you uh, with the 33% 
plunge uh, in the U.S. economy, uh, the contraction that we had in the last quarter. Where are we in the recession, Chris? <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty uh, eye-popping number, although um, one most folks had anticipated. Uh, where are we? That's a great question. Well, to be clear, let's let's remember, when you think about a business cycle, there's really two parts to it, Larry. The first part is the recession. The second part is recovery. Now, when the MBER classifies recessions, they do so from the peak of the previous, previous business cycle, which, by the way, they already called, that was February of this year, to, of course, the economic trough when economic activity is at its absolute lowest. Well, all the data, by the way, says that the, the economic trough was in April. Um, when you think about that giant negative number for the second quarter, it was largely April that did it. May and June saw substantial bounce backs, not only in, in of course, uh, employment, but also consumer spending. By June, uh, retail sales were almost back to trend. So technically speaking, believe it or not, the recession's over. And you would expect then when we get the next quarterly report, I guess that'll be in, in October, that we would see uh, a significant rebound? Absolutely. In fact, almost assuredly, the third quarter will be the largest up quarter ever seen in the history of the United States. Now, will it make up completely for the losses we saw in the second quarter? The answer is obviously no. And it's no because, A, we have a ways to go to get back to full recovery. And also because of the recent surge in the number of cases, um, you have seen a, a bit of a plateauing in the recovery. That is to say, while consumer spending had been growing very nicely up until June, beginning of June, the data suggests from the beginning of June till really mid-July, things flatten out because of the second surge in cases. And just put this in perspective, the, the previous worst quarterly contraction was 10%. We're talking 33% for the last quarter, which is just uh, astounding. The, the previous worst was a 10% contraction in 1958, which gives a sense of how devastating COVID-19 has been. And Chris, of course, we've got uh, a national unemployment rate of just about 15%. And um, how much of a recovery do we have without that unemployment figure coming down substantially? Well, well it actually already has come down. In fact, the, the unemployment of 15% was April's number. Uh, by June, it had dropped down into the 12s. And even there, you know, when you take a look at those unemployment numbers, one of the things you have to keep in mind is most of those folks do not say I'm unemployed because I've lost my job. I'm unemployed because I'm on temporary layoff from my job. Now, the number of people who are losing their job permanently is increasing, and it is at a year session level, but it's just a little bit above 2% of the labor force right now. To put that in context, at the peak of the Great Recession, it was running about 5%, a little over 5%. Of, of overall of the overall labor force. So again, while the numbers are eye popping, I, I continue to tell people that this idea that this is a great recession type scenario simply isn't true. It's a, it's a different kind of source. It's a completely different kind of business cycle. The lessons of the great recession do not apply here. And, and as again, as dramatic as these numbers are, we still expect largely a full recovery in the U.S. economy by the middle of next year as long as we get this virus under control. 
Chris Thornburg, Beacon Economics, joining us, founding partner of it. Chris, uh, with the $600 a week federal supplement to unemployment insurance ending and Congress not agreeing on either a full or partial extension of that supplementary benefit, what effect does that have on the economy if no part of that is reinstated? Well, some folks will continue to get some level of unemployment, and that will continue to help them. Obviously, a number of other folks, particularly uh, folks who are in the subcontracting arena, uh, they are going to be cut off because they were benefiting from a special provision that allowed people who typically can't get unemployment insurance to get unemployment insurance in this particular business cycle. Uh, so, yeah, it's going to put uh, a number of uh, any uh, millions of households, candidly, uh, into a position of more financial risk. Now, one of the things that I, I get a little frustrated with is this idea that somehow or other this is a cliff, that, boy, if people's checks get cut off, suddenly all these people are immediately going to get pushed into the streets and, and it's you know they keep calling it a cliff. There's no such thing as a cliff in economics. People have an ability to go some time. Obviously, it puts a lot of stress on them unnecessary stress. Clearly, they should be extending these unemployment insurance benefits for, for, for a while at some level. But it's not, it's not going to be a cliff if they don't do it. We'll be able to go a few weeks. You're just intensifying what I would call kind of the social issues. Um, what's really important here, I think, is one of the reasons that we continue to talk about a relatively rapid recovery is while we appreciate the stress being put on those households, at the same time, we have to look at the other side of the equation. When you think about the stimulus that's been already put into place by, by, by Congress, we're talking $3 trillion, that money has poured into the economy. And candidly, when you think about some basic statistics, for example, one of the numbers I like looking at right now are bank deposits. You know, when this thing started, the commercial banking system in the United States held a little over $13 trillion in deposits. Since the beginning of the year till now, that has gone from a little over $13 trillion to almost $16 trillion. We're talking about $2.6 trillion of cash sitting in the banking system, just sitting there. And that, of course, is all money that has come from people not being able to spend because they're afraid of the virus, combined with these massive government injections of cash into the system. The good news here is that money is primed to cause this economy to just explode once the virus goes away. And when all those, that money starts coming out and people are using it to go to restaurants, to go to hotels, to travel again, to get on airplanes, a lot of those people who have been furloughed will get to go back to work. The centerpiece of all this optimism is getting the virus under control. Wear your mask. Well, and and you're really talking about a vaccine because you're, you're talking beyond the ability of keeping the numbers down for people to go out and get together in large groups. And we're looking quite a ways away for that. Well, first of all, there's, there's some hopeful signs. I mean, uh, Anthony Fauci said that we might have a vaccine by the end of the year, but go the next step on that. Actually, when you look at places like New York, New Jersey, who have gotten in front of this, the number of new cases there has fallen pretty dramatically. When you get the number of new cases under control, you can put into place fairly effective tracing mechanisms. That is to say, you can start operating at a more normal basis with the idea in mind that, wow, if you do have small breakouts here and there, you can send in your team of folks to track it down, to get those people isolated and make sure it doesn't spread. You can't do that now. There's too many cases. 
You have to get control over this. And you know you can. If you look at Europe, you look at even like a place like New York, with appropriate social distancing efforts, you can, in fact, get control of this virus even without a vaccine. But their, their spending is not up anywhere close to what it was pre-pandemic, is it, even, even in Europe? It, it, like, just like the United States. Again, remember, retail sales right now are only a few percentage points below where they would have been on trend. Okay. Because people have already learned to adapt at some level to the current circumstances. Chris Thornburg, economist joining us, Jerry Nicholsburg, UCLA professor, director of the Anderson Forecast at UCLA. Professor, so good to have you with us. Uh, what are your thoughts? Do you see this similarly to Chris? Uh, good morning, Larry. No, I think we're much more pessimistic than Chris. So just a, a couple of points on that. Uh, so the NBER, who is our official recession dating committee uh, doesn't always look from peak to trough. For example, in 2001, uh, GDP in the first quarter declined by 1%. It then bounced back by 2.5% in the second quarter, but the recession wasn't over with until November because the third quarter was negative. I think the way that you have to view this is that we have two parts to this. One is uh, the shutdown, which occurred in uh, March April and into May, and the partial reopening. And the partial reopening should be our baseline because that's where we're at. Looks like that's where we're going to be at for some time. And with the partial reopening, you know, consumption, which is 70% of GDP, is uh, roughly 6% below the previous peak. That's three times what we had in the Great Recession. Well, we, we are going to see double-digit uh, growth in the third quarter because we're coming from that very low uh, level of the shutdown. But our, if our baseline is a partial reopening, what we're looking at is, uh, is a lot of layoffs coming up. They've been announced in airlines, in manufacturing, in retail. We have bankruptcies coming up. Uh, we're already seeing uh, weakness in the uh, in the job market as claims are going up. And when you get that kind of dislocation in labor markets, it takes a long time for folks to get back to work, to find new jobs, to move into different sectors. Uh, and so we don't see a 2021 recovery in employment. In fact, we think it's going to be two to three years. Uh, Chris made a very good point about uh, people have to feel comfortable to go back and travel and to go to restaurants and the like. And if we look at the data on that, there's not much, but uh, kind of the best data is, for example, from 9-11, when people were afraid to fly. It took 30 months before there was a recovery in in flying. You know, some people go back right away. We see that with a partial reopening, but others won't. And so even after 30 months uh, from 9-11, traffic was down about 7% from what it was before. So all of that suggests that this kind of economic dislocation, uh, and Chris is right, this is a very different recession from the Great Recession, uh, but this kind of economic dislocation just takes a long time to work its way through the system as folks find out they're not going back to work in retail, they're not going back to work in hospitality. Well, what are they gonna do? What are their skills? What skills do they need? and then searching for a job. And the economic evidence suggests, uh, you know, we're many months, uh, in fact, a couple of years before we get back to uh, where we were in 2019, much less trend. 
So We're talking with the director of UCLA's Anderson Forecast, professor of economics at UCLA, Jerry Nicholsburg. I'm sorry, you were just going to say something, and I, I stepped on you. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, no, I was just going to say that uh, our, our view is more pessimistic uh, than, than Chris's view for those reasons. Okay. Uh, Jerry, what about um, the $600 a week federal supplement on unemployment insurance? If that's not at least in part reinstated, what economic effects do you see from that? Okay, here's where I do agree with Chris. People do have resources. And indeed, the evidence that we have from uh, this kind of of, uh, supplement to income uh, is that a lot of it has gone into the bank and it's sitting there as a cushion uh, because households are fearful for the future. They're fearful for their jobs and they want that cushion so that they continue to uh, purchase the goods and services that they, they need to span this recession. Uh, so, yes, it will hurt, but it is uh, not, uh, and Chris is right, we don't have cliffs. It's not falling off a cliff. Uh, but it will hurt those who uh, are in for long-term unemployment. The thing, though, that we have to realize is that this recession has hit low-income workers harder than any others. So these are the folks that have the least capability of, uh, of making it. But, uh, but, but it's not as bad as some, some folks say. Uh, we're talking with the director of the UCLA Anderson Forecast, Jerry Nicholsburg. The Alan Matkins Anderson Forecast survey that was released a few days ago looked at rents on both the commercial and residential real estate market. Uh, Professor, what, what did the survey find? Uh, so two things. One is that the, the headline sentiment amongst developers was uniformly pessimistic. The survey was taken in May. That we would have expected. But interestingly, in multifamily housing and in industrial space, industrial space is primarily warehouses, uh, developers are, in, are going to try and increase their building. Uh, the first, because we're uh, dramatically underbuilt in housing in California. So rents will be going up and returns to development will be increasing. And the second, because uh, of this shift, dramatic shift to online purchases of goods and services, and the need from uh, firms to have larger inventories because of the broken supply chains means we need more warehouses. So there's some good news in the commercial real estate area. Uh, in uh, in the retail space, of course, there's not much in Bad the news. There hasn't yeah. been some time. So bad news in retail and in offices, um, also some bad news with so many people working at home and expectations that at least in part that will continue for some time? So this is a place where our analysis really differs from the sentiment of developers. So developers see exactly what you said, and they're pulling back on their development. Uh, But uh, all of the previous experiments with work from home have been uh, less than wildly successful, with Yahoo being the sort of the most public of those. And and we're now seeing uh, firms saying, no, we really do need to come back to work. Some work will be done at home, but it's not going to be wholesale. So uh, office space is going to be in increasing demand. And the other element to this is we have gone through a 
number of years where the amount of space per employee has shrunk, well, now employees are going to demand more space between themselves and other employees. So maybe fewer workers initially in the office, but more space per worker. Uh, We don't see that market as imploding. And in fact, as we get out into 2022, uh, you know, a new cycle of, of building in office space. Jerry Nicholsburg, thank you so much for being with us, Professor. We appreciate it. He's director of UCLA's Anderson Forecast, professor of economics at UCLA, and Chris Thornburg, founding partner of Beacon Economics, joining us as well. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. Coming up, we'll talk with Dr. Dean Blumberg, UC Davis Children's Hospital infectious disease specialist. He has much to say about the latest on COVID-19 as every day we update you with the most important news. We'll be back in just 90 seconds. So good to be with you on Air Talk on this Friday morning. I'm Larry Mantle. Film Week is coming up in just a few minutes. Enjoyed hearing that uh, promo we just aired for Fresh Air with Terry Gross at noon, coming on right after Film Week. Annie Ross, who died just a few days ago. I, I have such a vivid memory. Uh, gosh, I'm, I'm guessing maybe 15 years ago, she and John Hendricks of Lambert Hendricks and Ross had um, come back together, the two of them, to sing some of their great songs from uh, the late 50s, early 60s. And Kristen and I went to a, a little jazz club and saw the two of them perform. There are hardly any other people there and um, had a chance to talk with them after the performance. And just one of those great memories um, being in the presence of, of two tremendous artists, Annie Ross, uh, dying just a few days ago. But you'll have a chance to hear her great music. And Terry Gross remembers her at noon on Fresh Air here on KPCC. Joining us for our daily update on COVID-19, Dr. Dean Blumberg, UC Davis Children's Hospital, Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases. Dr. Blumberg, a very good Friday to you. Yeah, good Friday to you, too. Uh, are we seeing uh, a positive trend on COVID-19 here in California? Any Anything positive to take from our most recent numbers? Um, you know, about the only positive thing I can say is it appears that we may be peaking, but the, the rate of cases is very high. The number of deaths is very high. We've had about 100 deaths in California, averaging 100 deaths per day over the past few days. And we anticipate that this will continue um, throughout at least the first part of um, August. So, so that's horrible news, I think. But I guess the only good news is that it, it shouldn't rise. Hopefully it won't rise higher than that. Dr. Anthony Fauci testified before a House subcommittee this morning and gave an update on the progress of the COVID-19 vaccine, saying uh, phase three trials are already underway. We hope that as the time we get into the late fall and early winter, we will have, in fact, a vaccine that we can say would be safe and effective. One can never guarantee the safety or effectiveness unless you do the trial. But we are cautiously optimistic that this will be successful because in the early studies in human, the phase one study, it clearly showed that individuals who were vaccinated mounted a neutralizing antibody response that was at least comparable and in many respects better 
than what we see in convalescent serum from individuals who have recovered from COVID-19. Dr. Blumberg, you share Dr. Fauci's optimism. Well, yes, I think the vaccines so far look very promising. And as he mentioned, um, many of the vaccines that have been studied show a good neutralizing antibody response. So that's exactly what we want, not just nonspecific antibody, but antibody that, that neutralizes the virus from replicating. That being said, we're not sure that that's the mechanism of immunity. It might be other cells, so, so-called cell-mediated immunity, that's important for preventing infection. And those studies are just trickling out now. We've had some very promising results from animal challenge um, studies, too, with these vaccines. But really, the, 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 we, we still have all, so many questions. How long is the immunity going to last? Will there need to be booster doses? At what ages will this be effective? What about people with weakened immune systems? Will it respond? I've got more questions than answers. Yeah. And and the distribution issue, of course, and, and I know the federal government, I assume states as well, are, are gearing up so that when there are vaccines that have proven themselves, they can be administered. But, you know, as we've seen, governments have been very challenged in how they've responded to COVID-19. Uh, what's your degree of confidence that they'll be able to efficiently get people vaccinated? The states have been doing the best that they can, but what we've lacked is really a a coordinated federal response and leadership from a federal level. And so I think that is a concern to make sure that once a vaccine is out there, that it does get to the states in um, appropriate quantities. We're talking with Dr. Dean Blumberg, UC Davis Children's Hospital. If you have questions for him about COVID-19, it's your last chance till Monday's AirTalk, 866-893-KPCC, or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Stacy in West L.A. says, I'm seeing more people wearing masks with vents. Uh, I'm concerned about that because it seems people don't understand the risks. Uh, Dr. Blumberg, can you elaborate on why the vents pose problems? Yeah, I agree with Stacy. When I see those vents, I don't know if they're filtered or not. So some of those masks are probably okay because they have filters in the vents. But other of those masks, you just don't know. And those aren't designed for healthcare. Those are designed for industry so that if you're in an area with pollutants or dust, that you breathe in filtered air and then you breathe out unfiltered air. So that poses a risk to people who they're in contact with. And in fact, at the hospitals that I work at, when the screeners at the entrances see anybody wearing those masks, they tell them to to change into a standard surgical mask. Even though they may have filtered vents, I guess because there's no way to tell looking at it from the outside. Exactly. That's exactly right. And, And no way to tell, even if they are filtered vents, the degree of filtering taking place. But for someone who's who's looking at getting one of those masks in which the vents are filtered so they're not just ex- expelling contaminated air, um, is there a way to determine how well filtered those vents are? Oh, yeah, there's industry industry standards on, on those. But I, I still wouldn't recommend getting one of those masks because, again, I think people are going to look at you in public when you're wearing that mask, and they're not going to be sure. And you don't want to have to be explaining to everybody um, about the efficiency of your mask. It's just like if you're coughing in public, you know, even if it's due to allergies, that's just not a good look these days, and, and everybody's going to avoid you. 
That's so true. <laughs> Having been in that position where I've got a dry throat and a cough coming on and you just worry, oh my gosh, people think that you're uh, communicable. Dean, uh, Dr. Dean Blumberg, UC Davis Children's Hospital with us on Air Talk. We'll continue with your calls at 866-893-KPCC and your questions about COVID-19 back in one minute. One of the movies our critics will take on on Film Week in just a few minutes is a British drama that's getting a lot of attention, Summerland. It stars Gemma Arterton and Gugu Mbatha-Raw. It's directed and written by Jessica Swale. We'll hear what our critics have to say about Summerland. Also a documentary on L.A.'s own rock group, The Go-Go's. It's airing on Showtime starting today and on the Showtime app as well. Allison Elwood, the director of the documentary, which looks back on the height of, of fame and popularity of The Go-Go's and also uh, the group reuniting in Los Angeles. We're at 866-893-KPCC. Dr. Dean Blumberg with us to talk COVID-19. He's the Director, Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases, UC Davis Children's Hospital. Diane in West Los Angeles, you're on with us. Hi, I want to find out about safe testing. There's a lot of difference, it sounds, between like rapid testing, where people feel like they get a result in the next day versus PCR, and some people don't get results from three up to 10 days or eight days. By that time, then, you know, you don't know about the office, the family. Uh, so it, should there be some test that people should not get because of false positives or positive negatives? You know, um, are there some tests that are better than others that people yeah. are seeking when they go to get them? Diane, excellent question. Dr. Blumberg. Yeah, so the gold standard test is really the PCR assays, and those are the swabs. Um, sometimes they're the nasopharyngeal swabs that go deep, and other times they're mid-turbinate, meaning in the middle of the nose. Um, and those um, tests are excellent. Um, those can have a short turnaround time, um, but many of those are sent to commercial labs that do have a five to ten day turnaround time. And, and I feel your frustration. You know, what's the point of getting a test when you're not going to find out for, for ten days? So that's very, very frustrating. There are more point-of-care tests that you can get results within 15 or 20 minutes. Um, those tests are good if they turn positive, you can rely on the results, but they're not as sensitive. So it means if you get a negative result, you're still not sure if it might have been missing um, the, the detection of the virus. And so those are a little bit more difficult to interpret. Well, and then the question is, is does testing really pay off at this point? If to get the results of a PCR test, it's going to take almost as long as you would be self-quarantining anyway. Uh, and if the other tests are, are not as reliable, does taste testing make sense? Or is it just better to, to quarantine when you have symptoms? You know, if you're otherwise healthy and you don't need to get medical care, then it just then it, it, I agree it makes sense to just quarantine without testing. Testing can still be useful for studies or for public health purposes, but otherwise it's not going to really make a difference. And you should quarantine no matter what you have. You don't want to infect people with it. Um, if um, you're hospitalized or you're high risk for complications, then in that case, of course, it makes sense to get testing. 
Dr. Dean Blumberg with us, Diane. Thank you so much. We appreciate your question. We're at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. From Long Beach, Alan asks, when a vaccine is developed, how long will that vaccine's effectiveness last? Would it be something we would take just once or would you have to take this multiple times, perhaps even annually like a flu shot? Yeah, and and that's a question that I have myself. I'm I'm not sure. So um, the people who are being vaccinated now, their immune responses will be followed for a long time to see how long um, it's projected that they might be protected for. Um, and then in addition to that, we have to worry about the virus changing. All viruses mutate. And if there's a significant amount of change in the virus, then it might result in the need for more uh, to change the vaccine like we do with influenza to try to keep up with the changes in the virus. So we just don't know. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Oliver in Santa Barbara says, I was curious if Dr. Blumberg, being a pediatrician, has seen the latest JAMA study, a study of children under five who show mild to moderate COVID-19 symptoms. Those kids were found to contain higher concentrations of the virus compared to older kids, teens, and adults. Uh, this done at uh, Chicago Pediatric at a Chicago Pediatric Hospital and Northwestern University. Dr. Blumberg. Yeah, so it's interesting because the young children seem to have very sky-high concentrations of the virus, and yet, paradoxically, they don't seem to transmit it as efficiently as older children, children 10 years of age and older, and adults. And I think the explanation for that is that the younger children are less likely to be symptomatic when they're infected, and so they're less likely to cough or sneeze or otherwise get those droplets out there that are infectious. It's a little bit more self-contained. But is it typical in infectious diseases that the concentration of of the virus does directly relate to um, the threat it poses to someone in the vicinity? Yeah, so there's two there's there's a couple of things that are important. One is the concentration of the virus and then the other one is how you contact that person. So how that virus gets to you. So the person who receives that dose of virus. So if the children aren't coughing or sneezing, then their contacts are less likely to to be exposed to that high concentration of virus. And it might be that the older individuals who are symptomatic then might produce the um, the the virus, the droplets, and then result in more infections. Uh, Roberta in Koreatown says, I understand that COVID can affect the uh, gastrointestinal system. Are there any changes there that we could notice that would be indicators of COVID-19? Yeah, so many patients who um, have infection don't just have respiratory infections, and there's a whole bunch of other manifestations that may occur. It may affect the heart. Um, it may affect um, uh, the brains and result in encephalitis and confusion. Um, and then it also can affect the gastrointestinal tract, and many patients also have vomiting and diarrhea. It's rare, though, for somebody just to have vomiting and diarrhea without having the respiratory symptoms. Almost 95 or 96 percent of patients who are infected have fever, cough, or shortness of breath. So they usually have the respiratory symptoms also. But we know the receptors throughout the gastrointestinal tract, and we know that the virus has been recovered there.
Dr. Blumberg, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking this time to talk with us about the latest on the coronavirus and COVID-19. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. Have a good weekend and stay well. Dr. Dean Blumberg, Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases, UC Davis Children's Hospital, where he's also Professor of Medicine. Film Week is coming up in just about 30 seconds, and then Fresh Air with Terry Gross at noon today. Annie Ross, the great jazz singer, will be remembered. I want to thank our terrific AirTalk team, headed by senior producer Fiona Ng, though Natalie Chudnowski has been serving in that capacity this week. Our thanks to producers Matt D'Angelo-Antonio and Lindsay Wright. Itzy Quintanilla has also helped us. And Sabrina Fang and Julia Murray are our news apprentices. Barker McDaniels, our superb engineer as well. Have a wonderful weekend. Stay tuned. Film Week with our critics just moments away. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Film Week. Welcome. I'm Larry Mantle. This week, I'm joined by film critics Christy Lemire, Tim Cockshell, and Charles Solomon. We'll hear their reviews of the Polish drama The Hater from highly regarded director Jan Komasa. The documentary The Fight focuses on four ACLU cases filed against the Trump administration. Director Ron Howard went to the northern California town of Paradise right after it was destroyed by the deadliest wildfire in state history. We'll talk with him about his new documentary, Rebuilding Paradise. And L.A.'s own The Go-Go's are profiled in a new Showtime documentary. We're listening to Eric Korngold's score from 1938's The Adventures of Robin Hood, which starred Olivia de Havilland, who died last Sunday at the age of 104. It's Film Week. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC, the KPCC app, and kpcc.org. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us, and I'm joined this week by critics Tim Cogshell of Alt Film Guide and Synagogues.com, Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com and co-host of the Breakfast All Day podcast, and Charles Solomon, critic for Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. We begin with the Netflix streaming Polish thriller The Hater. The film is directed by Jan Komasa, and Christy's going to start us off on The Hater. I am, and I was just blown away by this, so I'm happy we get a chance to talk about it today. Um, This comes from the director and the writer of Corpus Christi, which was nominated for a Foreign Language Academy Award this past year, and it could not be more relevant on a couple of different levels. It's about this young man who is getting kicked out of law school at the beginning of the film, and he insinuates himself in the world of both social media, marketing, and politics, and in the dark worlds of them both. And he's like a straight-up sociopath. I mean, he seems mild-mannered and intelligent and nice enough, but it is absolutely chilling to watch him become whoever he needs to be in whatever situation he's in, in order to manipulate everybody around him to achieve his ends. And I'm not sure he even knows what his ends are. He's just trying to control everybody through fake social media accounts and staging fake protests 
All of this is going on as a wave of white nationalism is sweeping across Poland. This film actually was supposed to come out last year and had to be delayed because a violent act that takes place in the movie actually happened in real life. It just happened to be that eerily prescient and, and relevant. So it it's very dramatic and very intense, but the director, Jan Kamasa, takes this like detached, almost clinical and cool approach to these increasingly horrific things that are going on. It is so suspenseful. We're talking about the hater, Polish thriller Tim. Yeah, he's a sort of talented Mr. Ripley-style sociopath, this guy. Even, even as he's being kicked out of uh, law school, he, he manages to turn it to his, to his own uh, by, by asking for the autograph of the professor uh, who's on the panel who's kicking him out of law school. He asks her to autograph her law book for him because she's such a wonderful professor. And he has to sort of dastardly smile. Um, uh, you know, um, what, what's interesting is that, that it needn't be that kind of a sociopath in this particular role. It could be a standard sort of deviant troll, a sort of generally amoral person or some sort of fifth column. They can do all of the things that this guy did to, to get the results, a sort of a, there's this horrible event that he manipulates into happening. Um, and, and that's what's really chilling about this is you don't really need that sociopath at the center of these sort of manipulations in order to make these sorts of things happen. Uh, and I think that's what got to me the most. Uh, he's a wonderful actor. I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name, but he has a way of contorting his face, uh, the looks that he can give that tell the story behind his eyes, uh, that sort of reveal uh, the sort of human being that he is if you're really paying close attention. The Hater is streaming on Netflix from the Oscar-nominated director of the previous film, Corpus Christi, Jan Komasa. His movie, The Hater, unrated, streaming on Netflix. The ACLU-focused documentary, The Fight, is directed by Elise Steinberg, Josh Kriegman, and Eli Dupre. Tim? Yeah, yeah. All of these legal battles, uh, fights, as it were, are between the ACLU and, and the Trump administration. It happens to turn out to be that way. The nature of the ACLU itself, though, it's sort of driving and intention is explored, uh, even when it puts them in the unpopular on the unpopular side of an issue. So whether it's the Klan uh, marching in Skokie, Illinois, back in 78, I literally remember that. I was uh, living in the Midwest then. Or, or, or white nationalists protesting in Charlottesville, Virginia, in August of 2017, where where young Miss Heather Heyer was killed, uh, you know, the, the ACLU was on their side of that, too. So at the end of the day, though, this is more or less uh, the ACLU against the Trump administration uh, in, r- with respect to these particular four things. We follow these four lawyers from the ACLU. Uh, one, uh, regarding a case uh, regarding ab- abortion rights, the other immigration rights, the other LGBTQ rights, the other voting rights. Uh, the arguments in front of the Supreme Court as we are with these lawyers more or less flies on the wall. Uh, and, and of course, we, we know how these cases turned out, and that's all revealed in the film, too. Nevertheless, it's a fairly thrilling and, and, and gut-wrenching uh, sort of, sort of um, uh, examination of how these things work. The Fight documentary focused on the ACLU. One of the attorneys whose profile, by the way, has been a frequent guest with us on Air Talk, Lee Galernt. Christy, what do you think of The Fight? I liked it very much as well, and not unlike the last film we just talked about, The Hater, this could not be more relevant because all this stuff is still happening all around us all the time in terms of 
you know, fighting for these kids who are being held in cages in terms of, you know, the ability for young women to get abortions. Um, everything that we're, that we're seeing take place in this film is, is still happening every day all around us. And I, I was sort of um, impressed with the filmmaker's ability to be everywhere all the time at once. Tim says that they're like flies on the wall, and it's true. Um, this is from the directors of the Anthony Weiner documentary. So this is definitely a, a world that they are interested in exploring, you know, politics. Um, but the the one of the four fights that seems the driest, the one over the citizenship question on the census, you know, are you a U.S. citizen? It would seem to be the, the most boring and the least emotional, and it ends up being the most emotional and the most gripping of them all just because of the way that it turns out. So, yeah, this is very informative. It's not an eat-your-vegetables thing at all. It is shot and cut and edited very thrillingly, and you really come to care about and appreciate the hard work that these folks put in. The fight is rated PG-13, and it's on a wide range of on-demand platforms. The comedic thriller She Dies Tomorrow is written and directed by Amy Simons. It stars Caitlin Scheel and Jane Adams. Christy. Amy Simons is so great, and she has been around for a while now as an actress, a very beloved indie actress, and increasingly has been behind the camera, writing, producing, directing. And she's got such a clear focus on the tone she wants to set and the kind of story that she wants to tell. Um, Once again, this is a movie that feels very relevant because it's all about existential dread. It's about people who are completely convinced that they are going to die tomorrow. And that notion gets passed on from one person to the next to the next. And it's contagious. It is literally contagious. One person will say, you know, I'm going to die tomorrow. And she's totally convinced of it. And her friends will say, no, you're not. You're just in a bad mood. Here, have a drink. You're fine. Um, and then the idea gets into their head. And again, Amy Simons made this movie, you know, a while ago, but the feeling of isolation and the feeling of uncertainty that we are all experiencing now, she portrays in her film. And it is a nightmare scenario, but the way that she has shot it in terms of lighting, in terms of color, makes it feel like a dream. There's like a hallucinatory kind of quality to segments of the film that keep you off kilter and not knowing what is real, what's imagined, what's happening in real life and what's just in your mind, what's a flashback and what actually happened. Um, You mentioned that it's a comedy. It is unexpectedly funny here and there. There are some like understated dark comedic moments. Um, But this is a a gripping and very tight little horror movie. She Dies Tomorrow's Rated R, written and directed by Amy Simons. And you can see it on screen at the Mission Tiki Drive-In Montclair and the Vineland Drive-In in the City of Industry. The documentary Rebuilding Paradise is directed by Oscar winner Ron Howard. It uh, takes us back to that awful day, uh, November of 2018, when a fire burning through the mountain town of Paradise in Northern California devastated almost the entire town and uh, disrupted uh, and destroyed the lives of thousands of people. Uh, The documentary is uh, showing on demand, as well as at the Vineland Drive-In in in the City of Industry. Christy, what did you think of Rebuilding Paradise? 
It's just gripping. And I don't know how Ron Howard did a lot of what he did here. Maybe you can enlighten us when we hear your interview with him later on, Larry. But I just, I wonder, how did he get this footage? How did he get these these folks who live in this town to share this these intimate moments of just abject fear. The first 10 minutes of this film, my heart was racing. I was, my heart was pounding and I was panting because you are in the car with people as they are escaping the flames. It is 11 o'clock in the morning and it looks like this hellscape in the middle of the night. It must have been terrifying. But so many of these folks, I mean, were willing to to share the, these most intimate moments of fear for this film. And it is terrifying, but also inspiring and also fascinating the way the the aftermath plays out in different ways. This is such an insular place. It's such a tight-knit place, the kind of town where you grow up there and then maybe you go off to college at Chico State, which isn't too far away, but then you come back and you want to raise your family there and then pass that on to the next generation. And so you know, they rebuilt in, in ways that are inspiring, but you also see how the the toll of this broke some families apart. And it's very unexpected, the, the various paths that we go down with a lot of these people. It's very inspiring. I really enjoyed it. Rebuilding Paradise, the documentary about what was the deadliest fire in California history. Charles? Well, I agree with Christy, about, particularly about the opening of the film. It is so powerful and so frightening. And you wonder, where did he find this footage? How did he get it? It doesn't look like amateur work at all as the flames are engulfing uh, the car the camera was in. Um, After the fire, though, I think the film rambles a bit, that it doesn't stay as focused. But I did like that it, it did talk a great deal about how this kind of fire is going to become increasingly common because of climate change. And we have to be prepared for it. We have to find ways to deal with it. So a strong film. But as I say, I I felt it was rambling uh, as it went on. Rebuilding Paradise, Tim. Yeah, 100-year-old gold rush community paradise was that first 10 minutes. You're absolutely right. Um, uh, Intrepid, thrilling. Um, Mostly we're we're seeing random video footage that people capture today, phone cameras, uh, car cameras, uh, uh, security camera type stuff. Astounding to me that so many people were shooting with their phones right out of their car windows as they were uh, encircled by these uh, torrential flames. Children crying and screaming, are we going to die? Yet the camera still rolls. Uh, That's an interesting thing that's come to be in our society today. Post-fire, I think Charles is right. We get into sort of issues around rebuilding PG&E and their responsibility. Should be, should we be building in any of these places at all? Um, I have to say that this was a pretty homogeneous community, Paradise. I did not see a single, please correct me, uh, Christian Charles, uh, a single brown or black person in this entire film. A couple film. of They're, Latinos uh, among the college students, yeah. Our oh, high school okay, students, you. excuse me. Yeah, 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 thanks, thanks, yeah thanks, I, didn't see a, I didn't see a single African-American, though. Very, very homogeneous community. It's interesting. I ask myself as I watch, does this matter? Is it relevant? And, and I think that there is in a certain way. We mostly bend over backwards to rebuild these communities. In the Midwest, where I came from, it was always a matter of flooding in the Missouri and Mississippi River basins. They would flood every year. They would rebuild every year. This never happened in black communities. I want to point people to Katrina in, in the Ninth Ward. Still not rebuilt. Um, so I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know if that's a thing that matters uh, in and of itself, but it does reflect something that goes on in communities of different shapes and colors. Uh, and the film doesn't really speak to that very much. 
Rebuilding Paradise from director Ron Howard documentary on the devastating Paradise Fire in the fall of 2018. Ron Howard will be with me later this hour on Film Week talking about the movie. And um, one way that I think uh, he probably got the cooperation of residents, his mother-in-law lived in Paradise, so he had visited the town previously, uh, which probably helped a bit with Entree with, with the residents. Rebuilding Paradise, rated PG-13 at the Vineland Drive-In in the City of Industry, it's on Lemley's Virtual Cinema and also available on video on-demand platforms. Coming up, we'll hear what our critics have to say about Summerland, which is a British drama starring Gemma Arterton and Gugu Mbatha-Ra. We'll uh, also hear about the documentary on L.A.'s own band, The Go-Go's, which goes back to look at their 1980s uh, height of fame and what's happened to the group afterwards as well. That's a Showtime uh, channel documentary and the Japanese animated film Ride Your Wave from Masaki Yuasa. Charles Solomon will tell us about that. Those all coming up on Film Week here on 89.3 KPCC, kpcc.org, and the KPCC app. You know that sound of L.A.'s own Go-Go's? And we're going to hear about a documentary airing on Showtime that highlights the Go-Go's rise to fame and uh, their tour, the group coming back together, and much more. That coming right up on Film Week with our critics Christy Lemire, Charles Solomon, and Tim Cogshell. But first we hear about the British drama Summerland, starring Gemma Arterton, Gugu Mbatha-Raw, and Lucas Bond. Jessica Swale, the writer and director. Tim? The British always seem to be able to find a new and interesting angle on stories from the Second World War. Uh, Miss Swale has found one here, to my mind anyway. Um, uh, she's a noted playwright, uh, by the way. Did a wonderful production of Nell Gwynn that starred uh, Gemma. Uh, and, and that's how they sort of got together. Gemma's company produces this film, which is about this woman, uh, a writer, uh, who's living near Dover. And uh, during the war, uh, they, they were sending children out to the countrysides to get them away from London, from the bombing in London. And, and a boy arrives on her doorstep uh, who she is intended to take care of. She does not want to take care of this boy. She likes living alone. She doesn't pretty much like anybody. Uh, nobody in the town pretty much likes her. The movie is about how her and this young boy bonds, but it's also about where that boy came from and how he ended up on her doorstep in the first place. Um, I, I love the way Jessica uh, 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 Swale writes these stories. These are, about, these are about women who are presently empowered women. Uh, these are not women looking to be empowered. They already are. Same thing with that Nell Gwynn a story. She was an actress in the 17th century uh, who, uh, who fell in love with, who King Charles II fell in love with, and uh, to the chagrin of many because she was a woman who would not be told what to do. That's the same thing that's going on uh, in this story. I found it, I found it uh, deeply moving. Uh, Gugu Mbatha-Ra is in the film. Lucas Bond plays the little boy. I liked it a lot. What I like a lot about it is that it is an original story from Miss Jessica Swale. It's not based on anything. 
Summerlin, the film, what do you think, Christy? It is quite lovely. And in this lineup of films today, which are just absolutely harrowing, it is a nice, charming, beautiful respite. Um, you know, great period clothes and rolling green hills and those, you know, sharp white cliffs of Dover, as, as Tim mentioned. Um, yeah, Google and Bought the Raw and Dem Arterton have really lovely chemistry together, you know, at, at a place at a time where it wasn't really okay to be a gay couple, much less an interracial gay couple. You see these, these glimmers of their love and uh, you know, what could have been. And it's, it's, a, it's a very sophisticated, lovely soap opera. There is melodrama. There are twists that occur. Um, you know, they might make, you, you know, make your breath catch as, as you see them. But um, everything is done in such a refined, tasteful way that you have to just appreciate it. There's great care that has gone into the details of the scattered, messy items on Gemma Arterton's desk next to her typewriter as she's trying to write. You know, her her hair is tied back with a scarf at all times. It's meant to look messy, but it's just so. And there's just great care taken with the glances and and the the way that Gemma Arterton remembers Gugu Mbatha-Ra. She can't remember her face in its entirety the first time because it's just too much to take. So she remembers like what her hand looked like and then maybe what the fur of her coat looked like and maybe what her lips looked like. And then finally she can bear to remember the glory of Gugu Mbatha-Ra in full. Um, so yeah, it's very lovely. It's kind of a take your mom movie, you know, it, it's, it's tasteful, but worth seeing. Summerland, British drama, written and directed by Jessica Swale. It's rated PG. It's on screen at the Vineland Drive-In in the City of Industry and on multiple on-demand platforms. The documentary The Go-Go's uh, is from Showtime. It's directed by Alison Elwood. Christy. So I have to say from the very start that I'm completely the target audience for this. I love the Go-Go's. I always have. Beauty and the Beat is the first album I bought with my own money (laughs) at Warehouse Records on Ventura Boulevard in Encino. I was nine years old. I felt very grown up. I remember it like it was yesterday. So I love this band. I love all these songs. And what this film does so well is capture the spirit of them, both back then and now, because it's got this incredible wealth of archival footage and photos from when they were just starting out and punk shows, like great black and white photos of like Jane Whelan and Belinda Carlisle at punk shows around 79, 80. Um, and that's where the band was birthed. I mean, they, you know, the first album had a bit of a punk edge to it, but it was more of a pop album. But you see the origins of that sound and how these five women came together. Um, so you have all of that great stuff and these great early performances of the Go-Go's themselves. But then you have interviews with them now, all five of them now, as well as their original manager and two of the original band members. And they look into the camera and they unearth their regrets and they open their hearts and there's an honesty and a candor and a straightforwardness that are so disarming that it really allows the film to transcend the kind of, you know, behind the music, rise and fall tropes that you see when a band is going back and talking about its history. All the same things tore this band apart that tear so many bands apart, the booze and the drugs and the pressures and the egos and ultimately, with this, with the Go Go's, it was a fight over money and credit, and then they all went their own separate ways. Um, so that is fascinating. There feels like there's a 
piece missing, though, because we go from seeing how acrimonious their split was and how shocking that was given this fantastic, loyal sisterhood they'd formed. And then all of a sudden, they're back together again. And they're on the stage at the whiskey like they always were. And they're working on a song together. And I, w- I would like to know what happened in that leap, right? Like who initiated that reunion and how awkward was that? And what are they doing now? And how does it feel now? So there's a little piece that's missing there, but there is great love for this band. And if you love the Go-Go's, you will love this movie. The Go-Go's, the documentary from director Allison Elwood, is on Showtime and its channels this weekend, also streaming on Showtime's app. Ride Your Wave, Japanese animated film from director Masaki Yuasa. Charles. Well, Yuasa is one of the leaders of the alternate anime movement in Japan, and his films don't look like conventional Japanese animation any more than they look like conventional Western animation. The figures are greatly simplified and elongated. They're almost um, Egon Schley-esque. He has a very bold sense of color. And in this case, uh, the film focuses on Hinako, a young woman who is a great surfer, but who feels she's a complete klutz on land. Her skill and her grace in the water attract the attention of Minato, a very motivated firefighter. The two of them quickly fall in love. They strengthen each other. They assure each other. They reassure each other. And after he's killed, she believes she can bring him back to her by singing their favorite song and he'll appear in a watery surface. Ultimately, she moves on. But what I like about this uh, film so much is that in Hinako, you have a heroine who has talents and strengths and abilities, but also doubts and weaknesses and failings. And I think she's a much more fully realized female character than you get in most uh, Western, certainly in most American animated features recently. So this is a very unusual uh, film, even by anime standards, but a very interesting one. Ride your wave, the film. Tim? Charming. Uh, perhaps perhaps overly so in some ways. Our, our heroines, uh, all of her mannerisms are fairly traditionally Japanese female mannerisms, what we would think of as such. Yet she stands there in this lanky body and these, with these round eyes and her little yellow bikini, uh, and she is wholly and completely this Western girl. She's a white girl. Um, and, 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 and while I found this all you know, interesting, I, I just can't help it, and, and, I, and, I, and I beg Charles, please, to explain to me the sort of visual dynamic, even, even, even the boyfriend has a sort of Western presentation, although you can tell that he's Japanese. And I'm just not exactly sure what the visual or aesthetic dynamic is that brings us to this. Why does she not look like a Japanese girl, Charles? Um, Well, the answer is that to the Japanese, she acts Japanese, so they accept her as such. The large eyes indicate sensitivity, not uh, a Western um, uh, ancestry or, or ethnicity. And she's simply drawn in this particular way. Things like this, the eye color and the hair color uh, are largely used just to identify characters because the features are often fairly generic. So because she acts like a Japanese girl to these audiences, she is. Hmm. Christy, what do you think? I liked it a lot, too. It's very sweet. That song is catchy, you guys. 
If you hear that song once, you hear it a thousand times in this movie, and it will be stuck in your head for the rest of the day. <laughs> but it, it's very sweet. And um, yeah, as Charles was saying, it's, it's, it's very different in terms of its look for anime, but it also has some very traditional notions of spirituality that we see in 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 anime films and the powerful use of you know fire and water those elements and how they they forge this connection between these two characters yeah and she, and she is strong and she is independent and she doesn't need to be rescued the way she maybe thinks she needs to be rescued in the beginning she she finds herself she literally rides her wave her own wave and uh, yeah she's a, a cool character in general i liked it Ride Your Wave, Japanese animated film, is unrated. It's available on-demand platforms starting this coming Tuesday from director Masaki Yuasa. Tijuana Jackson, Purpose Over Prison, a very personal project for its writer-director, Romani Malko, who also stars in the film with Regina Hall. Tim? Stars in is the writer, director, and editor uh, as illustrated by his credit of this film, very personal indeed. Funny for sure, this movie. Romani has created this character. And if you are uh, you know, a black person from uh, 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 corners of the black community, you will know this guy. This is the guy who goes in and out of prison his entire life for all kinds of ridiculously petty crimes. Um, and and he's, he's, he's just the kind of guy who in prison learns a certain sort of philosophy, a certain sort of wisdom, that you can only learn in prison. And the wacky thing about this, this, this prison philosophy and wisdom, it's often uh, quite true. Uh, and he goes, he decides when he gets out of prison this time that he's going to become a motivational speaker. Uh, and, uh, and this is the path that he sets himself on. He has this parole officer played by Regina Hall wonderfully. And we're in this sort of faux documentary situation. The student filmmaker decides that she wants to follow him around and see uh, what makes him tick. He has a great deal of exuberance, this guy. He's a positive thinker. When he gets into people's lives and he starts talking to them, he tells them all kinds of stuff that really works out well. But his life is just a flaming mess all the time, Tijuana Jackson. Tim, it's I feel really, like I know this man. <laughs> oh, I know. This, this guy's my cousin. I'm not going to call him out right now, but he knows who I'm talking about. It, it, but there's a certain sort of wisdom that, that, that's um, uh, espoused by this character in this film. And, I, and that's what, what Romney is talking about. He's talking about prison culture from the point of view of the incarcerated, from the parolee, and how the world looks at them and how they look back at the world and how they do not want to live in the boxes that they've been placed in uh, after having been in jail or in prison. It's really, really funny, most of all, but if you're paying attention, there's some good nuggets in there, too. Tijuana Jackson, Purpose Over Prison, written and directed by Romani Malko, who stars in the film as well. It's unrated, and it's on multiple on-demand platforms. The drama The Big Ugly is written and directed by Scott Wiper, Vinnie Jones, Ron Perlman, and Malcolm McDowell star. Tim. Yeah, yeah, and Leonora Critchlow and Levine Rabin are, are the, the two women in this movie, and they're they're pivotal to what's going on in this movie. So I want to mention their names. Now, this is set in West Virginia oil country, with half of the cast being from London. Nevertheless, this is a fairly straightforward western, with all the elements of high noon meets gunfight at the OK Corral, right down to the shootouts. Uh, you got Vinnie Jones, who's working for Malcolm McDowell. They're these uh, uh, London uh, uh, mobsters. They come to West Virginia to invest or actually launder some money through this oil field that's being run by Ron Perlman. And they're just a bunch of gangsters, too, in cowboy hats. Um, uh, something goes wrong between Vinnie Jones's girlfriend, played by Leonora Critchlow, and Ron Perlman's son. 
somebody's going to have to pay. And so we have our Western. You know, it's pretty intense. Um, uh, it's interesting that at the beginning of this movie, Ron Perlman's character pulls a Confederate flag off the back of a truck, a bunch of old boys that work for him in the, in, in, the, uh, in the oil field, and he says to them, why in the hell would you want to ride around with the flag of the losers on your truck? I'm a winner. This is the Ron Perlman character that says this to these old boys. Very, very interesting politics indeed. The Big Uglies rated R at the Mission Tiki Drive-In Montclair, Rubidoux Drive-In in Riverside, Van Buren Drive-In in Riverside, and on Video On Demand. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPECC, the KPECC app, and kpecc.org. Coming up, we'll talk with Ron Howard, best known for the dramatic films that he's directed over the many years he's been in the business, but he also also has done some documentaries lately, including Rebuilding Paradise, his documentary about the devastating fire that uh, leveled a mountain community in Northern California. That's coming right up. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. Available today on demand and at the Vineland Drive-In in L.A. County is director Ron Howard's new documentary, Rebuilding Paradise. It takes us back to the deadliest fire in California's history just over a year and a half ago. Uh, the disastrous Paradise Fire nearly destroyed an entire town of around 27,000 residents, $16.5 billion in estimated damage, and a fire that began as a result of malfunctioning equipment from PG&E. Joining us, the director of the film, Ron Howard. Ron, thank you for being with us on Film Week. It's a pleasure. Good to talk to you. Uh, let's talk first about your personal interest in this. I know you have family in Reading, just north of uh, Paradise, and your, your mother-in-law actually lived for a time in Paradise? Yeah, the last few years of her life, uh, she lived there um, until she got ill, and then she lived with us for, for the last year of her life. But but we, you know, I spent quite a bit of time in Paradise visiting her. Um, and, uh, you know, and when I... First, first Reading had a terrible fire. They call it, it called the the car fire, and uh, none of none of our loved ones were directly affected by it. But of course, the whole community was uh, terrified. Then, within weeks or a month, the campfire broke through and had to this devastating outcome. And I, I just, uh, you know, I'd made, um, you know, biographical documentaries about Pavarotti and the Beatles before that, and really enjoyed it. But I, but I was interested in testing myself in this way, but I wanted to find a story that, that felt personal because I knew it would be a different kind of deep dive. And, and, you know, when the question arose, you know, can, in my mind, can, can paradise, can it rebuild? Can it survive? What, what is it going to be like when you're struck with this kind of devastation? It's not a neighborhood. It's pretty much everyone. And uh, our team at Imagine Documentaries uh, Justin Wilkes and Sarah Bernstein thought it was a, an excellent idea and thought we should send a, a camera crew immediately. We did. Four or five days later, I followed, began asking questions, began making contacts. Another couple of weeks after that, we had some some footage. I had collected some ideas. We all had. 
shared them with Nat Geo and uh, you know, and they, they, they supported uh, basically being a presence in, 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 in paradise for the next year. Um, and uh, so I wouldn't say we embedded, but we were coming and going all the time. One of the things, Ron, that I think is so powerful about the film is you show the nat- natural beauty of the mountain town. It's just a gorgeous place um, between these canyons, sitting there in this this kind of you know secluded spot. It's not all that far off Interstate Five, and yet a world unto itself. And and then contrasting that with the intense devastation, just area, area, neighborhood, neighborhood, just totally raised by the fire. Uh, that juxtaposition is, is very powerful. Well, when I got there, you, you know, you, my, my previous experience had been of, of, of paradise as a, as a, just a beautiful little town, not a tourist town and it has no heavy industry used to be involved in logging, not so much anymore, but, but it, you know, it's, it had a, a wonderful quality um, great spirit around it. And when I got there, I've never been exposed to that kind of, of uh, devastation, you know, and um, you could just feel it coming from lot after lot after lot, you know, charred chimney, children's playground equipment, charred, uh, maybe a broad iron fence, maybe some steps still left, but just nothing. And uh, like like Hiroshima, like pictures you you know you've seen of Hiroshima, um, and uh, and I it really it really uh, was depressing. It was uh, without a doubt, and and talking to the people was also you know, very disheartening, or and emotional, or sur- surprisingly kind of stirring. And of course, in the wake of a catastrophe, that's a pattern. You know, some people just fight back and by God, they're going to, they're, you know, they're going to overcome this. And often that's followed by an even deeper despair. Um, and uh, we witnessed all of that in the, in the, in the, in the weeks um, that after we began following these individuals. And, and they are remarkable in the candor and, and how much they allow their emotions, the challenges they're facing to be recorded by director Ron Howard's cameras. We're talking about his documentary, Rebuilding Paradise, which uh, just opens this weekend at the Vineland Drive-In in the City of Industry. It's also on multiple on-demand platforms. Uh, later, it'll be on uh, Nat Geo. It is a Nat Geo production. The film follows Michelle John, the superintendent of schools, as she has to put her district back together in which... Uh, all but one of her elementary schools are destroyed. Uh, the high school students have scattered because their homes have burned down. The former mayor of the town, Wayne Culleton, is uh, sorry, Woody Culleton is featured as well. Uh, we've got uh, high school seniors who are profiled. All of them very compelling figures. But let's go back to this clip from Rebuilding Paradise, in which members of the local fire department, John Singler, Sean Norman, and Alejandro uh, Saise, explain what happened that morning of November 8, 2008, when they first started seeing smoke in paradise. That morning, the wind cranked up, and, you know, you're kind of waiting, like, what's coming next? In this particular case, it was a fire eight miles away. 
throwing up a column full of embers and the ash. darkest, blackest column of smoke I've ever seen. And then a 40 mile an hour wind taking that over the top of Paradise in perfect alignment and dropping it on the town of Paradise. And so it really was the perfect storm. We lost hundred and some thousand acres of land. There was multiple fires burning for at least a week, probably more. We just tried to save what we could save and, and help people along the way is about all we could do. It didn't matter if we had a thousand fire engines lined up on the ridge that day. This was going to happen. Describing the circumstances, November 8th, 2018, as the campfire exploded on Paradise, destroying uh, almost the entire town. Uh, how did, Ron, how did you, just briefly before we break, choose the individuals to highlight in the documentary? Well, it's not really much of a choice. You cast a wide net at first, and, um, and then we kept, we kept coming back for particular events, you know, town meetings, the memorial service, uh, the gold nuggets day or the, or the Christmas tree lighting ceremony. And we found that a lot of the same people that we'd begun following were showing up at these events and we would just check in with them and we begin to understand their story. We would track down others. And there were people who just evaporated people who were determined to stay, but you know, one week and we came back 10 days later and we couldn't even find them. Nobody knew where they were. Um, and, and so uh, you can imagine how uncertain and unsettled um, people were, but the stories did begin to uh, emerge and we did begin to narrow our focus. And I, I, I found in retrospect that showing up means so much in terms of coping with some a crisis like this, uh, you know, these, these moments where you're just, your life is upended. The people who went to the memorial, the people who went to the Christmas tree lighting, the people who went to the town parade, the people, you know, who who showed up at the community theater. These things really do matter. And those are the people that we found, despite the tragedies that they would still face, many of them in the in the, during the course of the year were enduring and they were making a difference in their community. We're talking with Ron Howard, Oscar-winning director, best known, of course, for his dramatic films, but also a director of several very well-received documentaries, the powerful film Rebuilding Paradise, opening this weekend on Video On Demand and at the Vineland Drive-In in the City of Industry. We'll continue our conversation and talk not just about uh, the loss of all the physical possessions that the residents of Paradise faced, but how this so deeply influenced the relationships between residents. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. We'll be back in one minute. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle with director Ron Howard. 
Rebuilding Paradise is his new documentary, coming out just over a year and a half after the devastating fire, which uh, pretty much destroyed that beautiful Northern California mountain town north of Sacramento and southeast of Redding. On the morning of November 8, 2018, a massive fire overtook the town, uh, and it was the most deadly in the history of California. Uh, Eighty-five people were killed. A total of 50,000 residents were displaced as a result. Uh, The film follows the year after the devastating fire and how residents coped with it, some staying and rebuilding, others who left the town simply because there was no more work or place for them to live. In this scene from the film, former Paradise Mayor Woody Culleton finally after dealing with just intense bureaucratic obstacles, gets the permit to break ground on his new home, and the emotional reality sets in. Town of Paradise permit to build my home at 1552 for a service road. I'm Jazz. Awesome, man. Awesome. That's it. Yeah. Look at that, buddy. We're on now. This is the beginning. Excited. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he finally caught up with me. <laughs> wow. And we see the saga of him trying to get that house built. Amazingly, he got it built within a year, the former mayor of Paradise. Woody Culleton. Ron Howard, one of the things you see is how profoundly the events surrounding the fire affected relationships. We see marriages that break up in the aftermath. Uh, The superintendent of schools suffers a devastating personal loss just as she's dealing with incredibly long hours and the challenges of, of reopening schools and getting the graduation out on the football field at the end of the year. Um, was that for you the 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 most poignant part of all this seeing the dramatic changes in people's lives yes it 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 was because you know you you you're you're um you know you're you're getting to know these people you're they're good people and and you're you're rooting for them and uh and yet the reverberations still catch catch them uh in various ways i think that's the thing that I didn't particularly anticipate is how long people's lives would be disrupted for. I mean, obviously, if you don't have a place to live, you've got to find a place to live. And that notion of sort of of getting back on track is quite different. I mean, the whole the whole definition of productivity kind of changes, and it it changes for everybody. You know, if you have resources, they're going to be directed in a brand new way, and it's not going to be what you planned. If, if you don't have a lot of resources to begin with, you are, are going to be struggling and in, a, and in a, you know, another level of hurt. Uh, and, and, you know, everybody witnessed that um, as well. And yet, the other lesson I'd say that, you know, that I, I take from it is these people are not like-minded in, in, every, in every way. I, I mean, they, it's, a, it's a pretty big community. And yet they put those differences aside. There was not finger pointing. They, they, there was no time for politics. They, they, they were looking for solutions. 
they were ready to make compromises as needed to get things done. And um, those people who were ready to have that kind of interaction and that kind of engagement with each other and with the town and with the various agencies, they, um, they achieved a lot. And I felt they endured a little bit better. You know, they were active. They, they, they didn't have much control, but they were exercising what they could. And that was very meaningful to me. And you know, one of the, the questions that comes up, Ron, um, I believe it was in a, a legislative hearing uh, at the state level, um, was was a legislator um, representing another district saying, well, you know, we read we need to think about whether we rebuild or build at all in these areas of high fire risk. And you had the legislator who was represented Butte County and, and uh, Paradise say, well, you know, if we use that standard, we wouldn't build in earthquake zones. We we wouldn't build in along the Gulf of, of Mexico where there were hurricanes or, you know, that there's risk everywhere. But this is an issue with which California is going to be grappling for years to come as climate change and devastating fires become part of our everyday or every year life. Of course, uh, you know, and I, one thing we never really found the right, we didn't have the right material to, to, to really express this in the film, but there were, there were a number of people who felt a kind of almost bitter regret that the town's safety and fire, the fire council had urged the town council to, um, to implement more restrictions and more guidelines as it related to brush removal and clearing trees away from houses and, you know, putting in, uh, you know, other roads. So there would be other escape routes and things like that. And, you know, and paradise was prepared. They knew they were in a fire zone, but no one prepared for this. And there were, there were just a number of people I talked to who, who, who felt that they should have been able to, put this idea across or the town should have responded. And it's uh, that they knew, they knew this could happen and it, and, and it did. And when you're just waiting for something to happen and it does some, you know, you feel that you, you, you know, that you've made a mistake and that, and you're paying for it. And, and the thing that I observed again is just how profound that payment is. It just goes beyond that moment of, of, of either living or dying. Um, it goes on to the way you're going to live and the quality of, of your life for, you know, months and years, uh, to come. So I am for, look, and it's an imperfect process. There's so many things to be concerned about and afraid of, and, you know, you can't prepare for all of them and you can't pay for all of them. But I think that, that it's, it's also a little easy to be in a mode of just reacting. We'll wait till it happens and then deal. And I think we're finding that that strategy is pretty wrongheaded and ultimately costlier um, than thoughtful, deeper recognition of what the problems are and searching for solutions uh, to help mitigate those, those, those threats to, as, as best you can. Ron Howard, thank you for being with us and talking about your film, Rebuilding Paradise. There's, there's all sorts of... Um, experiences with people that live there describing their decision to stay like the high school senior who 
We see the the land on which his family home was. He says he's going to rebuild and raise his kids there in paradise. And then you've got the school custodian and his girlfriend who had to move into a trailer um, where they pay more than they did to rent their apartment in paradise. And, you know, we're done with California's, is, you know, his response. So you see the range of that, all the challenges that people face. Um, and and that, more than the fire, of course, is at the heart of, of the story of re- rebuilding paradise. Ron Howard, thank you very much. Congratulations on a very powerful, uh, very human documentary. Thank you for sharing it with us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. Ron Howard, director of Rebuilding Paradise. You can see it on screen at the uh, Vineland Drive-In in the City of Industry, and it's on demand on multiple platforms. Thanks so much for joining us for Film Week here on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. Have a great weekend.